thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Jana Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and today we're discussing the impact of COVID-19 on Asian nations. Kim Koronek, Professor of Sociology and Director of the Asia Center, housed right here in the College of Humanities, is with me to talk about how these nations have responded to the pandemic, the impact of anti-Chinese rhetoric, and some lessons learned. So let's begin with the differences and how Asian nations have responded to the pandemic. What have they done differently to stop the spread of the virus as compared to what we're seeing in the U.S.? It's a really good question, Jana. And I would sort of start out by mentioning that Asia really encompasses incredible diversity uh, culturally, economically, and politically, and also in terms of their histories. So we want to keep that in mind when we're thinking about a region of, you know, four some billion people. But I think in general, we can look at case counts and death counts from COVID in the region and say that their their response has been tremendously more effective than the U.S. response and many nations in the world. So just to give a sense of the scope, the U.S. ranks seventh in the world um, in terms of deaths due to COVID per 100,000. So taking into account numbers of population. So we're towards the top in a ranking that we don't want to be in the top of, but ranking in the very bottom of deaths due to COVID are much of Asia um, with less than one death per 100,000. That's China, South Korea, Myanmar, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, and others. So India is seeing a surge right now. Um, It just yesterday had the highly daily case increase for any country since the beginning. So really big differences, but generally Asian nations are have effectively responded and they've been responding. I think these sort of winners in this fight or this war in Asia have been doing effective and widespread testing, contact tracing and strictly enforcing their quarantine measures. We maybe have not seen that in the U.S. and other nations. Um, and largely the populations are cooperating with those measures. Um, they're also finding that, you know, lockdowns are important in some ways for certain parts of time, but it's not enough. You have to have testing and contact tracing to really get beyond and to, to remain an economically viable country. You can't just close down. You have to follow up. Um, we do see some, besides these commonalities, we see some really unique aspects. We sort of see like the history and culture of countries kind of coming to the fore. Um, so Vietnam is probably one of the you know most um, successful countries in the world. It's one of these that has had only 35 deaths, but it has about almost 100 million people in its population. And they did it by fast and decisive action. They stopped all travel from China on February 1st all flights, all border crossings. They've had really effective public health campaigns, widespread sort of adherence to masking and social distancing. And then when they've had outbreaks, they've just had like tremendous response, like free community testing, testing entire cities of, you know, 1 million population. We just haven't seen this here. China's had really strict lockdown um, after the first case in Wuhan and other cities. Um, But that, you know, and that's where it's interesting. We sort of see like this, the nature of the governance sort of reflected in the response 
So they were, you know, in places where the um, lockdown was enforced, they would limit families to one family member being able to, to go out every two to three days to buy necessities for their family. That was it. Um, there were some, you know, raising some questions about whether that is um, a price that people are willing to pay. Could we ever imagine that kind of um, kind of government initiated response um, flying in the U.S.? Um, it's hard to imagine that working in the United States for a variety of reasons, both the government and the the populace being sort of willing to adhere to that. Um, you know, and then in China also, like when people are infected, they are for quarantine removed from their homes into government facilities. So really strong response. And I think by looking at Asian countries, we get this sense of like, what are possibilities? But it also leads us to question, what are we willing to trade off um, to, you know, engage in this public health fight. Um, you know, there's been some cases really effective contact tracing with apps um, that people install on their phones, but there's been some call to make it a requirement to install an app for contact tracing onto people's phones if they have them. Um, use of robots to control mobility and assess biometrics in China. So, you know, it's thinking thinking about the long-term implications. If we fight the virus, what will be the implications for personal freedoms? And I think that's where you see tension in the U.S., but also like what might be the long-term sort of consequences of, you know, employing robots and contact tracing apps in our technology. So effective responses, certainly in terms of the spread, but looking at the range of responses, we, build, we, we find ourselves asking, um, you know, what what is effective and what do people think is fair and acceptable? So you have already touched on this a little bit, but let's just talk a little bit more about how the diversity of each of these countries um, has affected the transmission and the response within each country. Right. I mean, I think we should be thinking about diversity and also disparity, um, especially economic disparity and how it's shaped transmission in different countries. And I think we can think about like in general is our people when they're asked to respond or when governments are sort of making requests, are the responses sort of creating and building on a sense of unity and cooperation or is the foundation one of division and mistrust? And I think we may be seeing more of the latter in the United States, but then there's, and, and we see that in some countries, other countries as well within Asia, and then in certain countries within Asia, we're seeing more of like a unified response. Um, I do think economically, in terms of economic inequality, we see signs of this, um, especially in India, where countries that are beginning with high levels of economic, economic inequality, their disparities are only widening as, as lockdowns are making many people um, jobless and they don't have a, a social safety net to turn to. Um, so I think like the going back to the um, example of Vietnam, one thing that we've seen in that country that's been very successful is really a response that's been one of, I would call it like unity and national pride. So the idea that the country has unified and is sort of inclined to you know, mass mobilization and responding positively when the country calls upon them to cooperate is maybe reflected in their recent histories of wars with outside aggressors um, and 
historically that has been China. Um, and so they're sort of operating on the, the you know, kind of ambivalent relationship with China in a way that empowered them in some ways um, because they quickly shut down borders to China and the, the, the government and people have responded with this sort of like, almost like a war narrative that they need to unite against a common foe, which is COVID. But then there's also the sense that, you know, we, we can't really trust what China is saying about the disease. And so internally that is sort of united um, them against a common outside enemy. But then you see in other countries in the region, and I would argue you kind of see this in the United States, um, there are lines of division that exist, and often those are along cultural or religious lines or between um, sort of native citizens of a country and foreigners, foreign workers, and those divisions are being activated. Um, and so you see in countries that have been relatively accepting of foreigners, foreign workers, and refugees changing their policies. Um, so in Malaysia, um, where they've been really welcoming of the Rohingya uh, community from Myanmar, a group of um, largely Muslim refugees, they have been very open and welcoming, but then there was a shift more towards detainment and less welcoming with the arrival of COVID. Um, so I think it kind of reflects this, maybe a need, a common need, a, a strategy of, of finding an easy scapegoat when you have a crisis. Um, I think you see that in how some divisions are being um, just like exacerbated in countries. Um, just one other thing to think about with the economic disparity. India, I think, is a great example of how a country that was experiencing a lot of um, economic downturn prior to COVID has only seen it increase. And there is great rural urban disparity and a relatively poor country that has a pretty poor healthcare infrastructure on the global scene. Um, and poverty is greater in rural areas. Um, but when India put in effect its really strict sort of sudden lockdown, migrant workers, about 100 million migrant workers in cities were sent packing sent back to their homes in rural areas where there was, you know, even poorer health infrastructure. Um, and this, the sense that if they were in cities where the virus was, they were potentially carrying that back to their homes. So um, there's been more than one person that have said that this kind of the joblessness and the desperation means that COVID is sort of a time bomb for inequality in places like India. And it was sort of kind of started by COVID. So I think it's thinking about how diversity is affecting the response, but also in the long term, how is COVID going to create more disparity and more division? Going back to this idea of a scapegoat, we see and have heard a lot in the U.S. Um, about anti-Chinese rhetoric. How has this rhetoric impacted the U.S. and our response to COVID? Well, I mean, I think the, the impact depends on the, the community to which you belong. I mean, I think the I think that kind of rhetoric and, um, you know, we still are hearing references to the China virus and the Wuhan virus from national leaders. 
or sort of opting to use a dividing rhetoric rather than a unifying rhetoric. Um, I think for the, the recipients of that message who are not Asian American or Pacific Islander population, they, they may be buying into it. They may be, you know, partaking in that scapegoating rhetoric and that, you know, is not really proving to help with um, virus response. I think when it comes to thinking about um, people of color, young people of color, really of, of um, different backgrounds, but certainly the Asian American population, they are really, you know, experiencing a much more hostile environment um, because they're, you know, the targets of bullying in schools and in the streets and in transit and on social media. And I think it really kind of calls up like past experiences with wars. I mean, we think of World War II and the treatment of um, Asian immigrant populations at that time. And we can't make, there's not an exact parallel, but they both draw on this kind of idea or notion of the perpetual foreigner stereotype that has been placed upon Asian Americans. And it really kind of fuels a lot of actions that are you know, tearing communities apart rather than pulling them together. Um, I would just sort of mention that the, this anti-Chinese bias and sentiment and rhetoric is not limited to the U.S. You see it, you know, amongst Asian nations. There's a massive Chinese diaspora in the world and many overseas Chinese, and you're seeing incidents rising in Japan, Korea, Indonesia, Vietnam, um, and it's also sort of spilling over again to this idea that outsiders are an easy target or a scapegoat. So you see sort of rising anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim bias um, following COVID in places like Sri Lanka and Malaysia. Um, I think one other thing to think about on this topic too is um, the presence of Asian immigrants and especially international students from Asia in our country and at our university. Um, there's been a reverse flow of students from Asia who've had to go home, who haven't been able to come back to the U.S., who are not completed with their studies, and students who had planned to come to U.S. universities who are not able to right now. And I think it raises questions of what that's going to mean for what had been a really sort of valuable um, relationship that we had with international students. Um, there was an executive order several months ago that would have required international students to go home if they're um, to basic, you know, in, in essence, be deported if their um, education went fully online. And that was pulled back. Um, that didn't go into effect, but it certainly seems like it may have had lasting effects in terms of relationships and, and students' comfort level with um, studying in the United States. So I think there's there's some negative long-term consequences um, for our international relations and um, international students that it'll, it'll take a while to sort of see how that carries out. So the Asia Center housed in the College of Humanities, how, what is the role of the Asia Center in helping to combat these issues and combat this rhetoric and to help our students better understand these nations and what is going on? And like you talked about, how do we help them understand the lasting impacts and help them understand what they can do about it? Right. Well, the Asia Center, I would say that our sort of prominent efforts and our, our sort of 
mean meaning or reason for existing is to build up understanding and awareness and cooperation through students and our community members sort of engaging with Asia in their education. And so we support um, an undergraduate and graduate program in Asian studies. And at the heart of those programs are um, language study as well as area studies. So learning about the culture and history of, of Asian nations generally, um, and then more specifically and so I think like through their education, students just become aware of um, the commonalities, what we share with Asian countries, um, our interdependence, um, as we are a globalized economy and we are aiming towards being global citizens that we need really need to understand um, our counterparts in Asia, interact with them. Um, we foster exchange as well. Um, and provides students support to do that language study and exchange so that they can really learn from and better understand, um, you know, their peers in, in Asia and to understand the histories of those countries um, and that region more broadly. Yeah, the Asia Center is really trying to shift and internationalize the education of students so that we're able to gain lessons and interact um, on a playing field that's that's level, um, where we're seeing um, other countries and other nationalities as groups that we can learn from and cooperate with. Before we have to end our conversation, Kim, is there anything else you would like our students in the community to know or understand about the Asia Center at the U? I'm sure I would I would just encourage them to to reach out to us to see us as a resource. Um, we host um, many events. Now they're you know presently much more virtual and online events, but really a lot of opportunities for our students um, and our wider community to get to know Asia through um, different um, lecture series, film series, um, and also the many courses that our faculty are teaching that are really excellent. So they might be courses on K-pop or the Vietnam War or um, Asian American history. There's really a wide range. And I think um, we can no longer, not that we have ignored, but the, the region of Asia is just going to become ever more important, I think, economically um, and demographically. And we ignore it. And you know, by not understanding um, that region, it's at our own peril. So I think students have a lot to gain in terms of, you know, their career opportunities, but just being sort of enriched by, um, by you know, taking on some of these opportunities, be they language learning or you know, history courses um, or some of the other events and scholarships that we do offer. That was Kim Kornick, Professor of Sociology and Director of the Asia Center. For more information about the center, please visit asia-center.utah.edu.